Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, very warm welcome uh, to this, the fourth lecture in the European Institute's Perspectives on Europe series. Um, tonight's topic is close to home. Uh, it's pressing. Um, and there is no one better qualified to address it um, or a better friend of LSE and the European Institute in particular than Dr. Heather Gravy. Um, now, Heather is Executive Director of the Open Society Institute in Brussels. Uh, she's also Director of EU Affairs for the Soros Network. Uh, and the mission, just to remind you, those who don't know, the mission of the Open uh, Society Institute uh, as it's put on its website is to build vibrant and tolerant democracies whose governments are accountable to their citizens. Uh, now, from 2004 to 2008, Heather was uh, senior advisor to European uh, Commissioner for Enlargement, Oli Wren. Uh, she was responsible in his cabinet for the Balkans and for Turkey. And I'm pleased to say also that she's been a visiting fellow in the LSE European Institute for many years. Uh, before joining the Commission, she was Deputy Director of the Centre for European Reform, which many of you will know, um, definitely one of the, uh, the very best uh, uh, think tanks in Europe uh, and widely regarded as uh, one of the best sources for fresh, uh, fresh thinking uh, about Europe. Now, Heather's academic career has included um, time at Oxford uh, and at Birmingham University. She's also uh, been at the Royal Institute of International Affairs, or Chatham House, She's written and published very extensively on EU enlargement and on the transformative power uh, of the uh, European Union. Anyway, I'm sure that this evening you will see why her expertise uh, and her advice are so eagerly sought by governments, uh, by institutions, European institutions and the media, not least for lectures and conferences like this. She's always positively brimming with ideas uh, and insights and original uh, perspectives and always has much to say. But unlike many people who have uh, much to say, what Heather says uh, is invariably interesting and uh, rewarding. And over many years of listening to her, I've yet to hear her utter something that struck me as particularly commonplace or banal, um, and I'll be surprised if this evening is any different. So I'm afraid, Heather, I've set the bar rather high for you this evening. Uh, I'm sure that won't phase you in the least. You're extremely welcome. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Heather Gravy. Well, thanks to all of you for turning up this evening. Um, what I'm going to try and do is to put some order into my own thoughts uh, this evening about um, enlargement uh, and how the EU influences countries um, just outside its borders. I've been working on enlargement um, since, since the mid-1990s. I, I started working there with Kirsty Hughes on, on enlargement when nobody believed it, was, it would actually happen. I remember um, just uh, very soon after I joined Chatham House, uh, going to a reception there, and a very old lord um, came and said, so, you know, what are you doing, young lady? And I explained, I'm working on EU enlargement, you know, to the post-communist countries, Poland and Hungary and so on. And he went, marvellous subject, keep you going till retirement, they'll never join. <laughs> so um, 
I, I've borne that, uh, that comment in mind uh, through the subsequent uh, years, nearly 15 years now of working on enlargement, when people t tell me now, Turkey will never join. When people tell me now, you know, the Balkans never be ready, it's just never going to happen. There is this extraordinary logic to, to EU, EU enlargement that keeps it going. Um, but that's just on the EU side. Um, the other side of it is actually what's interested me a lot more over these years, um, which is what effect does, does the EU have in these countries? What happens on the demand side for enlargement? Uh, now, there are many distinguished academics, some of them here at LSE, who worked on why does the EU decide to enlarge? Why does it accept new countries? Uh, but what I'm going to try and look at is uh, why do they seek to join? Why do they try to meet the conditions? And what effect does it have on these countries? And I'm going to draw on um, the academic literature on enlargement, which is now pretty sizable. It wasn't at all sizable when uh, I started on enlargement. Um, but uh, working um, with, uh, with colleagues who, who were um, at the time also uh, young, enthusiastic, uh, would-be academics uh, starting to look at it, um, this, this literature has now developed. And I think there are some very interesting insights from it, um, from what's been done on Central and Eastern Europe, that we can apply to Southeastern Europe. So the, what I'm trying to look at this evening is, is the puzzle of why did the EU's transformative power work so effectively in Central and Eastern Europe, and yet it's clearly much less effective in the Balkans and Turkey. Why is that happening? Now, uh, a politician would say, well, it's, it's pretty obvious. The circumstances are different. Uh, you know, different countries, EU's in a different place. But I think there's also an academic puzzle, uh, a political science puzzle to it all. Uh, because many of the conditions are not so very different, in fact, when you look closely, and yet still it's not quite working. Um, it's not just about the incentives that the EU has to offer. It also has a great deal to do with the identity construction of the countries that are seeking to join. So this evening I'm going to try and look at both the supply side of, of the process in terms of what the EU offers and, and what it tries to do with the countries and the demand side, what the country, how the countries respond to that um, and how they receive what the EU is trying to offer them. Now, I'm going to make a, a very short um, uh, case for um, my kind of starting premise. Um, and if you want a longer case, I'm afraid you'll have to read a few uh, things, um, which is about the EU's transformative power. I wrote a book with this title, so I'm just doing a short book uh, promotion here. Uh, a commercial break, because I'm, I'm not going to go into this in, in so much detail. But um, I argue, I start from the argument that the EU had an extraordinary uh, impact in Central Eastern Europe, really quite unprecedented. Uh, we could argue, and I would find difficult to argue, that the EU has such a big impact now after these countries have joined the Union, five years after uh, membership, almost exactly. Um, but uh, uh, certainly between 1989 and 2004, it had an extraordinary impact. And that was for a whole range of reasons, um, which uh, we'll come on to. Um, I would argue even more strongly that it was a historically unprecedented influence I don't think any international organization or indeed any superpower could claim that it had such a deep and extensive influence on the domestic economies and the domestic polities of um, other countries. The United States could never claim that any country had tried so hard to meet its conditions, to follow it, its, its agenda, to adopt its norms, to um, take on its legislation and its policies than Central and Eastern European um, countries did uh, with the EU. Uh, even countries which have been military occupied, militarily occupied by the United States um, over the years, not just the current ones, um, it would be difficult to argue that the U.S. had had such a shaping influence on them as the EU did in Central and Eastern Europe. 
And these were effects on a range of different things in the countries, on their institutions, everything from um, the way in which uh, the judiciaries function, uh, the way in which the competition authority was set up, uh, the way in which uh, the rule of law works in the country, to policies. There are some very obvious things like environmental policy, regulatory policies of various kinds, but even their identities. There's a very interesting strand of literature now in international relations on constructivism, um, and the constructivists, I think, have a lot to say about where, how the EU worked um, in Central and Eastern Europe um, in terms of the construction of an alternative identity after communism, uh, certainly in the first years after 1989. So that's just some, some pretty bold statements about uh, the, the impact that I think the EU had in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, we could debate that more if you want to come on to it in questions. Um, but I, what I'd like to do is to draw out some of the insights both from the academic literature and also from policymakers, uh, because I was first an academic and then I went to Brussels in 2004 to work on enlargement. Um, so I thought it might be useful and interesting uh, to try and draw those two things together, because they don't often match, in fact. Um, when I first met um, Olly Rehn when he became commissioner for enlargement, his first question to me was, so how can we do for Bosnia what we did for Hungary? Um, and so uh, this is still a, a very important and live question. Um, I'm not sure whether we can do for Bosnia now what we did for Hungary, um, but it's, it's still a, a key policy question as well as a very interesting academic question. So how did the accession magic work? And I call it magic because there is a sort of a sense of there's something that works that we're not quite sure of, that it's very hard to pin down, which is one of the reasons why it's so methodologically challenging um, how to, to, to get um, to what exactly happens when a country seeks to join the EU and the EU sets out the conditions. Uh, how exactly does it work? Um, and it, the, the magic element is a way of avoiding the question of how do you measure it, uh, because it's extremely difficult to measure. Uh, so I'll talk uh, first of all about the, in a, in a rather parenthetical way, but um, nevertheless, um, some of the insights from the academic literature for Central and Eastern Europe, and then we'll see how they apply to the Balkans. And I'll also talk about the conclusions of policymakers in Brussels, because I've talked to a lot of them, I've worked with a lot of them in the past five years, um, both in the EU's institutions, in the Commission above all, but also in the Council Secretariat in the European Parliament, um, and also those from the new member states, because of course, uh, when I joined the Commission in 2004, I met many people whom I'd known as chief negotiator for their country or the person in charge of this or that aspect of the accession process, and suddenly here they were as commission officials um, making policy in Brussels, so they also had some very interesting things to say. So I'll just draw some personal impressions about that. So first of all, the, the, the enlargement literature. And I'm indebted here to Uli Sedlmeier of the LSE, with whom um, I wrote a chapter uh, this year on the future shape of the union, which will be coming out. And um, uh, I think most of you uh, know Uli, and he's, he's really excellent at uh, drawing particularly the distinction between rationalist approaches and what they can tell us um, about uh, the process and the constructivist uh, literature. So I'm just going to summarize roughly uh, the conclusions that, that we came to. Um, first of all, the rationalists tend to look at the material costs and benefits. And they, they basically say, the EU's influence, it's all about the incentives it offers, the agenda it sets, and how exciting it is for these countries to join the union. Um, how much do they want to join? How motivating that is? How many people? So you can look at opinion poll surveys of how much public support there is. And 
the constraints on the impact of the EU is about the domestic adjustment costs. It's about domestic interests. It's about whether or not um, it, it just costs too much for politicians to advocate the reforms that the EU is demanding, um, and it's too difficult to get it through national parliaments, to get it through business interests um, and all of the other domestic interest groups which, which come to play. So it's about uh, material issues, it's about costs and benefits, and it's also about bargaining power. If you're a large country which the EU really uh, wants to join, then you're likely to have um, rather more bargaining power, if, for example, you're Poland, uh, than if you're a relatively small country and if you're pretty desperate to get in, um, and therefore you'll, you'll bargain uh, less hard. Um, and there, there are many studies of how the countries behaved in the accession negotiations which show that, that this... This is a pretty good explanation on the whole. But there's more to it than that. Um, it's not just about uh, hard-headed policymakers, hard-headed politicians, looking at what the EU is asking them to do and working out whether it's really worth doing it in order to join. Um, certainly after 1989, there was a very strong emotional attachment to the idea of Europe. Um, and particularly the identity politics of Europe played a very positive role in underpinning the whole process of reforms. Um, it wasn't like joining the WTO or, um, or, the, or even NATO uh, where you could make a cost-benefit calculation, uh, make the case to the people, have a referendum and to decide on that basis. No, it was much more visceral than that. It was something that people felt was about their own identity as Europeans. Um, overcoming um, the, the Cold War, finishing the division of Europe, which many felt had been artificial, um, most people in the country felt had been artificial, and, and finding a new identity in Europe. We are Europeans. We claim our rightful place in Europe. This was a hugely important part of the process. Um, and so the constructivists um, in international relations have, have rightly looked at this question of legitimacy and identity. Um, the way in which the EU also, the EU's influence also worked through persuasion, through socialization, um, through identity construction within the EU and also with, it, with the potential members. So people-to-people -people contacts, meetings of civil servants, uh, the way in which central bankers would get together and talk about central banking policy. This was important. It wasn't just the politicians making the grand bargains, sitting around the table late at night saying, well, okay, uh, we can accept the CAP more or less with these phase-in periods as long as you give us that on the Polish nurses. It wasn't just about bargaining. It was also about the, the, the contacts that people made um, on an individual level, the way in which they felt about the European Union um, and the legitimacy of the agenda that the European Union set um, within the domestic political frame. And, and the, particularly, I think, the, the question of identity construction, that for many people after 1989, the European Union was a really convenient way of constructing a new identity. It, it could underpin a new identity in quite a fuzzy way. The idea of Europe was not particularly contested. Um, the, even the idea of the EU, you had a few mutterings, uh, certainly, for example, in Estonia, I remember there was a slogan, um, in the, particularly towards the end of the negotiations, about, you know, we didn't leave the Soviet Union just to join the European Union, uh, resist the dictatorship from Brussels. Now, that's the kind of thing you normally hear in the UK. It's still pretty unusual to hear it in Central and Eastern Europe, and certainly until 2004, it was very, it was rare. I still wonder whether UKIP was actually active in Estonia at the time. Um, but it, it's, this, this, the, the, the whole idea of Europe as a quite positive alternative identity um, to uh, the pre-1989 sort of imposed identity um, was, was an important one. Um, and it's, it's one that uh, was largely people could uh, shape to fit themselves. It was something that was sufficiently amorphous and vague that it could mean all things to all people. Um, 
it didn't really matter whether you were on the right or the left of the political spectrum uh, on what you did before 1989. Um, you could still claim to be, I'm European, I have a rightful place in the European Union, um, and the EU is the future for, for me and for my children. Um, and so it, it played this positive role in, in terms of uh, constructing identity. So how does this apply to Central and Eastern, to, to Southeastern Europe? Well, this is when it gets um, quite complicated. But uh, before I go into that, I'm just going to come to the policymakers because I think it's quite important we, we look at them. Um, talking to policymakers who were involved in the process, um, which I did as an, as an, uh, an academic, uh, you know, dutifully going and doing my interviews and process tracing and so on, but then also hearing their rather unvarnished views when they became colleagues um, in Brussels, um, there were some remarkably similar themes that came out um, in what they thought about when accession conditionality works. Basically, when you're able to go to the capital of the country and say to them, say to people, this is what the EU wants you to do, it's going to cost you this much, you've got to work out whether you can buy off the various dom domestic interests. Essentially, they, there, there are three broad themes that come out. It needs to be consistent, it needs to be coherent, and it needs to be credible. It needs to be consistent in the sense that um, the EU uh, follows the same agenda across time, uh, that even as governments rise and fall, the EU keeps asking for the same reforms. This was hugely important in, for example, Poland, when there was very rapid changes of government. If you've got a government changing every 18 months to two years, having the EU constantly asking for the same kinds of reforms of the judiciary, of the competition agency, of uh, the, the state administration, um, the EU provides a sort of anchor, a sort of continuity during political turbulence, um, which, which really helps. Um, and if it's asking consistent, of course, these three things hang, hang together. The more consistent the EU is, then the, also the more credible it is. The EU also has to be pretty coherent to have a big impact. Um, and, you know, it can have an impact regardless. This is about the, the conditionality, when does it work best? These are the ideal circumstances. When the EU is pretty coherent in what it asks for, when it puts uh, forward a vision of um, a single market um, which, uh, in which the country has to be competitive, for example, that works pretty well if the EU is not at the same time saying, oh, but, you know, you can actually have uh, French or German methods of corporate governance if you like. Um, in fact, the EU was in some ways more coherent in what it put forward on the economic uh, policy side uh, than its own member states were. Um, it was certainly more neoliberal than, than the policy, economic policies being pursued by the member states at the time. But this coherence really matters, and you can see that in some of the areas where the EU was less coherent, um, it had less of an impact. For example, um, there were contradictions, of course, in the accession conditionality. Um, one that I did a lot of work on was the, the um, regulations on free movement of people. So on the one hand, the EU was saying to these countries, you have to um, allow for free movement of people. You've got to have mutual recognition of qualifications. This is one of the four freedoms in the single market. On the other hand, oh yes, but we have this new Schengen thing, which means we want you to control the movement of people um, across your borders rather carefully. And your workers can't come and work in most of the, the uh, old EU 15 member states uh, until many years after accession. So there was a contradiction there, and you can see that um, because of that contradiction, it was quite hard for the countries to justify the reforms sometimes that they were making um, in the EU's name. So coherence matters as well. And finally, credibility. Credibility comes from many different um, things. It comes partly from consistency and coherence. But I think it was the, uh, the fact that the prospect of accession was credible was really important. That was actually the, the really fundamental thing, that um, it never seemed more than about five years away. Um, even from the early 1990s, there was always a, a belief that somehow the next government, after the next election horizon, might actually join the European Union. 
Um, and that credibility of that we will eventually join and that it won't be um, the next generation which joins also made the, made the accession conditionality uh, work well. So that's on the EU side. The EU needs to be consistent, coherent, and credible to make a difference. But what about the conditions in the countries? Well, the accession conditionality has tended to have the most impact on countries when, first of all, they have a strong and well-organized state. The EU, after all, conducts intergovernmental negotiations with countries. It doesn't really connect directly with civil society. The Commission officials have to come and talk to government officials. They can't really talk to anybody else. That's how the European Union works, after all, within its own member states. Um, and so if a country is incapable of putting together a negotiating position or preparing documents which are intelligible to um, EU officials or um, even able to produce statistics in a, in a, a form that's, that's in accordance with international standards, it's pretty hard for the EU um, to enforce its conditionality um, and to, to promote its agenda. Secondly, you need to have a pretty strong cross-party consensus in favour of joining the EU. Now, in most of Central and Eastern Europe, that held most of the time. It was only the real fringes where people were saying, we shouldn't join, we just shouldn't join the EU. There were those who would criticise the process and say, well, we shouldn't go too far on here and we should negotiate a bit more on, on, in, in that area. But it was quite rare to have the main opposition party opposing that. I mean, President Klaus might tell you differently, but his party at the time, and when he was Prime Minister, was still in favour of joining the European Union. Um, there, weren't, uh, there weren't big differences um, on the whole. I'm speaking very generally here, but it's hard to find a, a party that was significantly opposed. Um, even, for example, the, the, the party, um, S, the party uh, led by Vladimir Mechar, who was in um, Prime Minister of Slovakia until from 1994 to 1998, um, although he didn't follow the EU's agenda, he was, in theory, in favour of joining the EU um, and in favour of preparing for membership, even if he wasn't prepared to do all the things that the EU asked for. So the cross-party consensus is quite important, and that's really critical in getting legislation through the Parliament, that you don't have the Parliament blocking the whole process. And finally, this one is perhaps a, a little bit uh, um, uh, difficult to comprehend at first sight, but you need to have significant inflows of foreign direct investment. Um, FDI uh, is the grease that keeps uh, the whole process going, even through very difficult times. Uh, you can see that over and over again in Central and Eastern Europe, where countries had significant flows of FDI per head, it was much easier to sell economic reforms in particular, and it was even easier to sell the more expensive parts of joining the single market. Um, because capital was coming into the country, skills were coming into the country, new jobs in new sectors were coming into the country, new products were coming in, um, and essentially it gave people hope that uh, the economy would get better um, and it could be different. So FDI really mattered, um, and in fact, I remember talking to a commission official in the 90s about how do you assess whether a country is actually competitive in the single market and has um, uh, a, a market economy, uh, a competitive market economy. And he said, oh, well, we look at levels of FDI per, per capita. So it, this was also taken into account by the EU. But you get this sort of virtue. We got, you could see that, for example, Hungary and Estonia first and then Poland got a virtuous circle going between economic reforms that brought in FDI. Then they get EU approbation, which brings in more FDI, which enables them to carry out the next phase of economic reforms. So what can we say in general about Central and Eastern Europe? What happened during the pre-accession period? So here I'm not talking about post-2004, but 1989 to 2004. Um, very roughly and very broadly, 
It was a catalyst for reforms. The EU didn't necessarily dictate reforms. Often the EU can't be prescriptive about exactly how a country should achieve a particular goal. But it was a catalyst in the sense that it made that reaction in domestic politics happen faster um, and more easily than it would otherwise have done. So that catalyzing effect was, was vital. It was a catalyzing rather than a dictating effect. Second, it was an anchor for the state administration during political turbulence. When governments were changing, when ministers were changing all the time, you had this anchor that where the state administration had a good idea of what it needed to be doing, at least in the range of areas set forward by the EU, um, dis despite the change of political masters. And finally, it curtailed extremism. It curtailed, it, it, it uh, got most politicians to tend towards the mainstream of European politics. Now, those of you who've studied Central and Eastern Europe after 2004 will immediately jump up and say, ah, so what happened after accession then? How did, all of, how did um, politicians who hadn't had very much success before accession then come into power? For example, um, Prime Minister Fico of Slovakia, or indeed, um, you could even argue President Klaus in the Czech Republic. Um, perhaps uh, it was because of that curtailing of extremism, of that tendency towards uh, the mainstream that made um, uh, voters then, after joining the EU, breathe a sigh of relief and vote for who, who they really wanted to vote for. For example, the Kaczynskis in Poland. You could argue that the populism, which, is, uh, which has very much come to the fore in a number of Central East European countries, um, was, was a kind of hangover um, after uh, the, the, the pre-accession period. But I won't go into that too much because that's, that's really a, a sort of another, another issue. What I'd like to come on to now is Southeastern Europe. Do these conditions hold in Southeastern Europe? Are these explanations made by policymakers in the EU, made by the academic literature, do they work for the Balkans and for Turkey for the next ra ra um, round of enlargement? I'm going to look at it from three different angles. One is the supply side. How are circumstances different in the EU? One is the demand side. How are circumstances in the region different? And then I'm going to look at this question of incentives and identity. Is it more a rationalist kind of explanation that we need to explain what's happening, or is it more a kind of constructivist explanation that we need um, to explain it? Well, on the EU side, clearly things are different. Um, I could start by, by, by quoting um, the many European politicians which have, uh, who have uh, criticised enlargement or said it should go slower or said it shouldn't happen for certain countries. But I just want to put it back into this frame of consistency, coherence and credibility. If it's the case that these are the three things you need, what's happening with Southeastern Europe? How consistent, coherent and credible is the EU's um, uh, agenda? Well, I think on consistency, it's relatively good. The EU is still um, roughly asking for the same things. The conditions get more and more elaborate and complicated because the EU is itself becoming more and more elaborate and complicated as time goes on. After all, um, when the Central and East Europeans applied for EU membership in the early to mid-1990s, there was no CFSP, there was no Schengen area, uh, there was no area of freedom, security and justice. The single market had only just been completed. It, didn't, it lacked many of the elements which have grown up since. Um, EU environmental regulation was, was, uh, and legislation was much less onerous. So certainly the agenda gets bigger, but the consistency of what the EU asks for is similar. Um, so I think that's not a, a, a significant difference. Coherence, again, it's difficult to argue. You've, you've got a big agenda, you've got a big acquis communautaire, you've got a big body of EU law, um, some bits of which are, uh, are inconsistent, um, some bits of which don't hang together terribly well. Um, but on the whole, the coherence of the agenda 
is, is pretty much the same as well. I don't think that, that makes a huge difference. The big difference is credibility. For the Balkans and for Turkey, the question of will we ever join seems much more pertinent than it did in Central and Eastern Europe. It seems much more difficult to join. They, see, they feel very much further away from joining the European Union. Um, and this question of will it ever happen, is it worth undertaking these reforms, doing all these difficult things the EU asks for, um, to get the reward at the end of it? So the incentive is less because the credibility of the process is less. Now, of course, there are some big differences between Turkey and the Balkans. Uh, there are some major European politicians who are perfectly happy to call publicly, uh, to say publicly that Turkey should never join the European Union. Uh, you hardly ever hear anybody saying that about any of the Balkan countries. But of course, the two things have an impact on one another. Uh, when a leading politician says, well, Turkey will never join the EU, um, people in Sarajevo, in Belgrade, in Skopje listen, and they think, hmm, does that mean that enlargement's actually going to stop? Um, so the credibility aspect is, is really critical. Um, but it's also a credibility of can we ever be ready to join when the EU just keeps asking for so many things. So credibility does still relate to the coherence question and, and this ever-growing agenda. Now, what about in the region? If the credibility is less on the, on the supply side, what about the demand side? Here, things are very different, very, very different. Strong, well-organized state. Well, in the Balkans, most of the countries have, are rather weak states. They have weak state administrations because they are new countries on the whole. Um, only Serbia, of course, has the uh, legacy of the former Yugoslav institutions, of the ministries, of the, of the people, of the expertise, of the archives, of all kinds of things. Most of the other countries have had to start from scratch uh, relatively recently and with a pretty devastating um, legacy of war around them. So you've got weak states. Um, of course, you have a rather strong state in Turkey, a very well-functioning state administration on many things. Um, but has it actually bought into the accession process? This is the question. Um, for Hungarians and for Polish civil servants, joining the EU was fairly axiomatic. For Turkish civil servants, it's not necessarily going to be the same thing. Um, so the strong state is there in Turkey, but how is it geared towards the EU? Then you have the cross-party consensus in favour of joining the European Union. Not very many politicians actively criticising the EU on a daily basis. This is, again, not the case in the Balkans or in Turkey. Um, there's a lot of post-conflict politics in the Balkans. Um, and although, uh, as in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, very few politicians say, we shouldn't join the EU ever, it's bad for our country, or we don't, uh, we're not European, you don't get that kind of rhetoric. But you do get some who say, well, what about Russia as an alternative, uh, as, a, as a sort of global protector of us? Um, even um, in Albania um, and among the Albanians living in various countries in the region, the ethnic Albanians, the United States still seems very appealing. Um, I remember there was a joke going around Brussels um, when the Kosovo status process that was happening. You know, if the, what happens if the status process fails? Oh, well, it's quite simple. Um, uh, we'll have um, Serbia can still join the European Union, um, but Kosovo will become an American state. Um, and meanwhile, Montenegro can join the Russian Federation. Um, but, you know, that was partly a joke that made people laugh because there was a sort of identity feeling um, and because you did get politicians from time to time, time saying, well, you know, there are alternatives to the EU. We don't have to join the EU, you know. So, and also, um, in terms of the post-conflict politics, the EU was asking for things which were extremely divisive between the parties. Um, in Central Eastern Europe, on the whole, what the EU asked for was not things that absolutely divided parties in two. Um, we come up with exceptions, but on the whole, 
that wasn't the case. Whereas when the EU was asking for things, for example, in Serbia, uh, the delivery of uh, indicted um, war criminals to the Hague Tribunal, for example, or in Bosnia asking for police reform, which certain parties and indeed whole entities were absolutely opposed to and which they made part of their election platform, then inevitably they were coming out as being against the EU and everything it was asking. Um, and so that's very different from Central Eastern Europe. Similarly, in Turkey, um, there are, there are, there are cross-cutting divisions about the EU across the parties. Most parties are in favor of joining uh, the European Union, but the divisions within Turkey um, can also end up becoming divisions about the EU, and I'll come on to that in a bit more detail later. But I just want to finish with the question of foreign direct investment. Well, we're in the middle of an economic crisis, so things are not great in any of these countries. Turkey is weathering it uh, reasonably well, but, um, and the FDI into Turkey is, is still happening, and that's helped with the, um, uh, with, with, with the reforms. But uh, for the Balkans, it's a really, really bad picture. And the amounts of FDI going into the region per capita are so small in comparison with Central and Eastern Europe that this factor is, is largely not there. So it, it has a huge difference. And, of course, in Turkey, you've got foreign direct investment, but it's coming into a market economy. Turkey is not in a situation where it's trying to do mass privatization, um, reconstruction of the economy, uh, orienting towards EU markets. Turkey's done most of that work already. And so the FDI inflows are coming in, but they don't have a big catalytic effect on, um, on trying to join the European Union. So finally, I'll come to the, uh, in terms of looking at what, what's happening, why, why is, is the EU, can the EU have the same kind of transformative power? Let's look at the question of incentives and identity. And here I'll divide up um, the, the countries because they really are quite different. In Turkey, the incentives issue, I've, the incentives issue is, is really different from the way it was in Central and Eastern Europe. Most people in Turkey are pretty comfortable with the status quo. There is a huge political debate going on in Turkey about the future of the country, about the modern republic and a potential postmodern republic, about uh, the relationship between religion and the state, about the role of uh, different uh, bodies, for example, the military and politics. There's huge, very passionate debates going on in Turkey. Um, but people don't have a, a, fe a feeling of an existential threat. They haven't recently emerged from a completely different system with a devastated economy. Um, no, in fact, the Turkish economy has been doing pretty well and it's weathering the economic storm not too badly. So it's quite hard for the EU incentives to trump domestic interests. There isn't an overwhelming sense of we've got to get out of this situation and the EU is going to help us to do it. No, this situation is not too bad. People would like it to change. Um, certainly uh, there are a lot of problems in Turkey which the EU can help with, but it's, it's just not on the same scale as it was in Central and Eastern Europe. Then we've got the question of identity politics. Identity politics are big in Turkey, but does the EU provide the answers? A very curious thing happened between 2005 and, say, 2007. In 2005, Turkey started negotiations in October 2005. And at that point in time, there was a pretty big cross-party consensus in favor of joining the European Union um, because most... Uh, people in the political elite in Turkey thought the EU would be on their side in the domestic debates. Uh, so if you were in favor of um, extending uh, the wearing of headscarves, uh, for example, to allow female university students to be able to wear the headscarf in lectures if they, if they want to, then you might think that the EU, with its variety of different models and its pretty uh, liberal approach to um, wearing various forms of, of identity and religious-based dress, would be on your side. Similarly, if you were a staunch secularist 
who believe that the most important thing that Turkey needs to do is to ensure that uh, there isn't creeping religiosity and that Islam doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't become a major factor in, in politics um, and doesn't want to see the country become more pious, you might look at European secular societies and say to yourself, oh, yes, let's be like France. That looks like a really good model. Um, and in practice, of course, what happened between 2005 and 2007 is that both groups of people found that the EU didn't come in on their side because the EU doesn't have a norm on headscarves. And headscarves is just one of many issues. I just use it as an example because it's a particularly visible one. Um, but the EU doesn't have an acquis on the, on the wearing of the headscarf. That, that's not its role. Um, and this is, it, it sees this is a question for Turkish society to resolve. So there are identity politics issues in Turkey, uh, but they're not ones on which the EU is necessarily going to come in. I mean, I could also use, we could go into a whole range of other issues um, to do with minority rights and, and so on. But um, on the whole, although the EU um, is supporting a, a, a sort of a broadly liberal agenda, um, it doesn't, uh, it's, it's not one which favors uh, particularly one party or another in terms of identity politics. Then in the Balkans, the Balkans is, is different again because there are plenty of identity issues in the Balkans, um, particularly um, following the war and, and the whole questions of, um, of, of reconciliation in the region. But it's quite hard for the EU incentives to overcome identity issues when the EU incentives are primarily very practical material ones. Uh, they are things like market access and financial assistance and so on. Um, the EU couldn't do so much to resolve status issues. Um, to deal with unfinished justice and reconciliation issues. Um, and the region has been really preoccupied with these issues um, during a period when the EU was saying things like, well, you know, we've really get a, got to get on with improving the state of the rule of law in, this, in, in your country. And they're saying, yes, but uh, part of our country is being made independent with uh, a lot of EU support. It was, it's very difficult to, uh, to make people pay attention to this very detailed regulatory agenda the EU is offering when there are these huge political issues about the status of their country, about its territory, about its future at stake. So the unresolved status issues which hung around for, um, from more or less 2000 until 2008 um, with uh, the question of the independence of, of Montenegro, um, the question of the independence of Kosovo, um, plus a number of other issues, uh, implementation of the Ocrit Framework Agreement and so on. These were very, very big issues in domestic politics where uh, the EU had a, a pretty clear policy, but it wasn't that much related to the accession process per se. Um, and in the region, there's still a lot of Yugo nostalgia. There is a difference, in, I think, in, in uh, the Balkans in attitudes towards economic reform in particular. In Central and Eastern Europe, there was a feeling that the previous model had failed and that people were already living better by the late 1990s. Um, and they were, even on measures of GDP per capita, than they had been before 1989. Whereas in the Balkans, that's not the case. Serbia still hasn't, well, it depends on how you measure it, but Serbia still hasn't reached um, its pre-1989 um, level of GDP per capita on a purchasing power parity basis. So, and people also feel relatively poorer, partly because their neighbors have got richer. Um, and so there's a sense of, so what's the big hurry on economic reform? What benefits is it going to give us? Um, and so the identity issues are still there, but so are the material um, issues are, are unresolved. So, can the EU transform the Balkans? Um, and these are just kind of personal impressions after uh, five years of trying to, trying to make it transform the Balkans, trying to make a difference um, in, in southeastern Europe. Um, I think it can make a difference, um, particularly in improving the capacity of state administrations where there are relatively weak states. The EU is putting a lot of money and a lot of 
um, people into doing this. Also in the rule of law, um, partly through rule of law missions, but also a consistent approach, uh, a consistent uh, pressure for judicial reform. Um, this is something that's hugely important in the region, where, which the EU perhaps underestimated a little bit, I think, in, in Central and Eastern Europe, how long it can take. Um, partly that's because the EU had a less developed justice and home affairs agenda for Central and Eastern Europe, but it's also uh, partly lesson learning uh, that EU officials have remarkably uh, seen what happened in um, Central and Eastern Europe and, and have noticed that rule of law is something you have to start working on really early. Also, minority protection. Um, this is a huge issue in the region, um, understandably, and it's one where even though the EU has no norms on minority protection, even though um, within its own member states there's a huge variety of different ways of protecting minorities and standards for protecting minorities, nonetheless, there's a pretty coherent view of how it should be done in the Balkans, and the Commission is, is therefore able to, to use that um, in encouraging the countries to do it. Um, but what you don't get is the catalytic effect on, on domestic reforms. Um, this virtuous circle that I was talking about between um, you, you make reforms, you attract more investment to your, into your country, the EU says, oh, jolly good, let's move you to the next stage of the accession process. That isn't working because the countries are, work, are moving so slowly towards accession for all kinds of reasons, uh, some of them good reasons. I mean, they shouldn't jump ahead um, uh, if, if they haven't met the conditions uh, because then that would make a nonsense of the conditionality. Um, but it means it's much harder to get this virtuous circle going where you have domestic incentives to, um, to keep going, uh, to, to, to keep on with the reforms because you know you'll get the reward from the EU in terms of membership fairly soon. Um, and yet, the hope I have is the last point I put on this slide, Tina. Um, if you listen to uh, the debates between the member states on enlargement policy, you'll hear a lot of debate and a lot of skepticism um, from some member states about whether or not Turkey should eventually join. But if you ask that question about the Balkans, you will hear silence because there is no alternative. What is the EU policy on the Balkans going to be if it's not for these countries eventually to join the Union? They are now an enclave in Europe. They're completely surrounded by EU member states geographically but also politically. They are already part of the European Union um, as far as security goes, even in terms of market integration, most of their exports go to the EU. They're very dependent on EU markets. So essentially, the EU has no choice but to keep trying to transform the Balkans. The question is, how effective might that be? How many euros will be wasted if it doesn't work effectively? So that's, I think that's the, the, the key question. Um, it's not whether or not the EU will, will basically just give up on, on enlargement towards the Balkans. Turkey is a different story, however. Um, in Turkey, you've got the question of the changing EU factor. I'm, I was explaining how um, I think in 2005 it was possible for everybody, everybody in Turkish politics to believe the EU would bring something to them, would be on their side in some way. That's no longer the case. Now people are taking a more um, detailed look at what the EU is asking for um, and realizing how the EU can't solve a lot of Turkey's domestic dilemmas. They really do have to be fought out um, within Turkish politics. Um, people are also realizing what exactly are the answers the EU can supply to Turkish questions. On the question of, of the, um, religion and the state, very little because the EU has never decided that. It's never come up with a norm on that um, within its own member states. Um, but then the encouraging side of it is how much does Turkey really need the EU to transform itself? Turkey is doing a lot of transformation even in the absence of a wholehearted commitment from France, for example, uh, to Turkey eventually joining the Union. 
um, Turkey's doing some remarkable things. Turkey has, um, you know, in the, in the past two years, uh, just to, to, to name it, um, it's uh, uh, in um, liberalizing, um, introducing many more freedoms for uh, the Kurds in terms of um, state broadcasting, um, in terms of cultural freedoms, um, also in normalizing relations with Armenia, in resolving a lot of uh, problems with, with neighbors, in taking a regional role of its own, in uh, reforming its economy. Um, there are a lot of things that Turkey is doing, even without a very clear um, and credible EU commitment to eventual membership. So maybe we should also be glad that the EU is not the, having such a strong transformative power, uh, because then you would need a really credible incentive for that to go on. Maybe Turkey's already got the catalytic effect when it needed it in 2005. Um, and indeed, I think the, the key to this is what happened before starting negotiations. Um, that uh, for, for a long period, even before the AKP came to power, the EU was encouraging reforms, um, which then have been continued. So I think the, the question with Turkey is, how important is the EU factor? Will it become more and more divisive, or is it something that, um, that will become less important as Turkey becomes more confident about the kind of country that it's becoming, um, becomes more comfortable with uh, its own diversity, uh, ethnic diversity in particular, um, and, and more comfortable with the idea of itself as a regional power? So I'll just finish by um, trying to draw a few conclusions for the challenges awaiting the next Commissioner for Enlargement. Um, I'm not sure if I ever answered the question to Oli Rehn of um, how do we do for Bosnia what we did for Hungary. Some of the answer is to say, well, you know, you have to advance the agenda. Um, but the question still remains for the next Enlargement Commissioner, um, how capable are these countries, the Southeast European um, applicants for membership, um, well, not all of them are applicants yet even, but uh, the countries that would, that, that would be um, applicants for membership, um, how, how much are they able to take advantage of what the EU has to offer? Uh, the EU now has a vast range of tools it can use in these countries, but they can't always um, adopt them. Now, in, from 2010 to 2015, to summarize very briefly, you can see that um, most of the countries can actually motor along in the accession process. The wheels of the process will keep turning. Um, it's extremely likely that Croatia will join. Um, since we had the um, uh, report on Macedonia two weeks ago, very likely to start negotiations. Let's see what the Council says. Uh, Montenegro and Albania will get opinions from the Commission on their applications for membership um, now that they've applied. Bosnia will, will certainly apply. Um, very likely Kosovo will apply at some point. Um, Kosovo is still very problematic um, on the EU side, um, as well as being far from being able to meet the conditions. But nevertheless, um, when the rest of the region has applied, I just realized I've left Serbia off this slide. How terrible. I also meant Serbia. The KBS, perhaps, there. Um, uh, Serbia will also uh, apply, and, and given Serbia's better administrative capacity, uh, could probably move uh, rather faster um, towards uh, starting negotiations. So things will move along. You know, if I were saying, you know, um, Mr. Commissioner, um, over the next five years, we can see all of these countries move one stage further along in the accession process. Um, so you can show results of your term as Commissioner. Um, Turkey will continue opening more chapters, particularly if there is a deal on Cyprus. Um, but, uh, you know, things can happen. But say that that happens and they all move along the stage, might they be reaching a new destination but losing the passengers? This is the risk that the transformative effect becomes so weak that um, the countries move forward in terms of procedurally moving uh, towards joining the EU. But it doesn't really have a transformation effect in these countries. It doesn't spark um, a domestic process of reforms that can keep going without the EU constantly pushing the same things. 
Um, and what does that mean for the EU in the end? Does it mean that the EU will have to accept countries just because they've been in the process for so long um, and for security reasons to, to accept them even though they haven't really met conditions? Or does it mean that the EU keeps them in a more and more comfortable um, waiting room? Um, these questions are still absolutely open. Um, I think myself that what we need to do at this point um, is to take a very hard look at what is really having an impact on the ground um, and, and, and see how to do that better. Um, it's very easy for the European Union to make rhetorical claims about we want to see this, that and the other for the region. It's much harder for the EU to take a hard look at what it's actually doing in the region um, and what effect that's having. I've never seen an impact assessment of the use of EU instruments in any country. Um, and I think that that would be the most important thing that the next enlargement commissioner could do. Um, but I'll finish with, a, with a, a, a metaphor that is not often used. Um, uh, you'll notice that in enlargement um, uh, politics, you get these endless metaphors about uh, trains. Um, is the train still running? Um, you have to get on the train before you go. Um, Ollie Wren is particularly fond of football metaphors, which I'm not even going to go into. But my favorite metaphor is the light bulb metaphor. Um, because uh, you might remember the, the light bulb jokes um, uh, about you know, how many feminists does it take to change a light bulb, how many uh, this, that, and the other. Well, my favorite is uh, the psychologists. Um, how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is only one. But the light bulb really has to want to change. <laughs> and this is the key with enlargement. If the country really wants to change, the EU has got lots of things to offer. And if the country doesn't really want to change, why would it take on board these things the EU is trying to offer? So I think we still have to look at the light bulb as well as at the psychologist. very smug. My prediction was uh, amply uh, confirmed. That was a real embarrassment of riches. Um, thank you very, very much. Particularly like the way um, the combination of your analytic skills and sort of academic rigor that brought to bear on hard policy questions with the political understanding that you have, not least having built up in the policy-making world. So thank you very much. Now, as is customary, uh, our guest is going to take some questions. Um, I think what I might do is discuss them just in twos, if that's okay, uh, Heather. Um, and um, usual thing, please, 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 short and sweet, uh, wait for the um, roving mic to come. Uh, if you could wait for the roving mic to come. Uh, say who you are and what your affiliation is. Um, and also, and if you're from a Western Balkan, or indeed a Balkan country, but a Western Balkan country or Turkey, uh, it would be interesting to know if, you'd, um, if you could tell us as well. Uh, not least, you may wish to differ from about some of the assumptions made, perhaps even by your, about your own particular country, uh, suggested by, by Heather. So, um, okay, I'll start with two. Um, Abby Innes, right at the back. Uh, and then a gen the gentleman over there in the checked shirt. Hello, Heather. Thank you for a great talk again. Um, I'm going to ask you a question, a version of which I probably ask you every couple of years for the last 20 years. Um, I, want, I think there's a tension between your psychologist joke and your analysis because I don't know if you can put up the demand side slide again for Central yeah. Europe. Um, on the, the Balkans or? Uh, for, sorry, for Central Europe. Because what strikes me is, it, is 
I think there's an over-determination of the role of the EU in transforming Central Europe. And if this is the demand side that's required for the EU to be effective, you have a strong, well-organized state, you have a liberal, pro-democratic, cross-party consensus, and you already have strong FDI, uh, you're basically at one with European norms already. You're, you're, in a, you know, you're, you're in the picture already. The EU is not transforming anything. It's falling into a very you know, fertile and ready territory. And I think one of the things that illustrates that further is that actually some of the things that you're implying, like strong institutional impact, that it didn't actually happen. In the Czech Republic, for example, they passed a civil service law for accession into the EU. It's never been implemented. Um, and this is huge. It's the whole state administration has yet to be professionalized in the Czech Republic 20 years after the collapse of communism. Um, similarly, you talk about corporate governance. Actually, they mostly have German corporate governance structures which are incoherent with their other more liberal structures. So in terms of the real impact as opposed to a kind of Potemkin village of reforms, I think, I think there's a real question. The question that follows from that, sorry, I have to set the context to ask the question. Um, Romania and Bulgaria show how limited the impact can be. And I wonder in a more sort of real realpolitik way, this makes you think about prospects for changing the Balkans. Coming back to your psychologist uh, metaphor, is there a danger that actually most of the things the EU used in Central Europe are completely insufficient for the Balkans because in, EU, in Central Europe they were already doing them themselves. It was a domestic uh, reform, essentially, a domestic transition. If that isn't happening in the Balkans, doesn't the EU set itself up as basically seeking to modernize the Balkans and isn't that going to result in a huge political reaction? How does it avoid that uh, appearance of colonization? Thank you. <laughs> um, the gentleman... Yeah, gentleman. Uh, my name is Michael Taventry. I'm, I'm half Turkish, so I think I'll just add to the other side of things. Um, you'll be familiar that uh, several chapters uh, in the negotiations with Turkey are suspended, uh, and this is directly connected to the Cyprus issue to which... Uh, there needs to be a solution for things to move on. Um, I was wondering if I could ask your opinion as to whether, uh, based on the fact that these chaps are suspended and based on the fact that the Turkish political class has committed to carrying on negotiations in these chapters and fulfilling the terms even though, uh, even though they are suspended, once the suspensions are hopefully lifted, do you think that there will suddenly be an acceleration in these chapters and they'll suddenly be closed? Or do you think that uh, the, the progress that Turkey is making is a little bit misguided when it comes to the Eki? Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I think the, the key thing um, with Abby's question about the overdetermination is that it's so difficult to measure what the EU's impact has actually been uh, because you've got no uh, control. Um, basically, you can't sort of say, well, here is a country which might have joined the EU but decided not to, and this is the impact that it, this is what it's done in terms of its transition. You don't have a kind of equivalent of Norway among the post-communist countries, um, and that's that's what makes it really interesting. And it, interesting from a political science point of view, you have to do all this process tracing, and you also have to try and separate out what was the EU's influence versus the World Bank, the IMF. Um, the OSCE, NATO reforms, the Americans, you've got a whole range of things going on. Um, that's why I, I like to refer to this, this thing of the catalyst. 
um, because the catalyst is, is really, I think, what it was all about. I would argue that it's all, that I, I think you're right, that you, the EU has to swim with the tide. It's extremely difficult for the EU to have an impact if uh, the tide is running completely in the opposite direction. I mean, look at Slovakia, 94 to 98, where you know, almost nothing happened um, uh, with regard to the EU. But once the tide turned, Things went very quickly indeed. I think it would have been, you could argue, it would be much harder for Miklos to introduce the kind of very uh, radical economic reforms that he introduced from 98 onwards if it hadn't been constant EU approval plus foreign direct investment, which was partly because foreign direct investors felt that the EU was offering a form of kind of uh, security for their investments, that it reduced the political risk. There was certainly a political risk uh, factor in it. Um, that, was, that was why he was able to do that. So yes, you're right. I mean, it, it, it's impossible to say precisely what impact it had. Um, and also, you're right about the Potemkin villages. Um, there's plenty of legislation and norms uh, which are there on the statute books and, and which still haven't been done properly. You could also argue that that's the case in the older U15 member states too. Um, I think the, the, the argument I'm trying to make is that um, the, the EU pushed it all faster, made it all go more easily, gave it a sort of coherence and a credibility across governments that made uh, it a much less contested process than it was in, for example, the CIS countries um, and in the countries like Ukraine, which were not offered the prospect of membership. I mean, maybe Ukraine is the control. Um, that if the EU hadn't offered, doesn't offer membership to a country, it's much easier for the reforms to get bogged down in domestic interest groups and domestic politics. Whereas when you've got the EU uh, to help to, to justify and validate um, the reformers, um, it pushes those of them to the fore in domestic politics, um, and it, they, they can claim all kinds of things. I mean, I think that's the other factor that, that's key here. The EU looks much bigger, bigger than its influence actually is, and this is the socialization effect. I mean, I think this is why, where the constructivist insight is really important, um, that uh, because you can claim all kinds of things in the name of the EU, and Brussels doesn't say, hey, we didn't ask for that. Occasionally it does when they're really outrageous. But um, it means that politicians can justify reforms in the name of the EU, which makes it easier for them um, to, to continue with, with a, a reform process. Now, the EU's agenda is, of course, highly technical. The EU does ask a lot in this famous 80,000 pages, now more like 120,000 pages of the acquis communautaire, the whole EU body, body of EU law. There's all kinds of stuff on uh, the number of particulates per um, uh, meter of air, of air that, uh, that you're allowed to have in terms of air pollution in cities. Um, uh, the you know, wastewater treatment plants, uh, health and safety regulations. There's endless stuff you can cite that's very detailed. And yet, on the biggest political issues um, for many countries, the EU has very little to say. Minority protection is, is the one I mentioned because that's, that's one that's extreme. It's a very hotly debated subject, but it's one where the EU is not very prescriptive. The EU says to the country, protect minorities, but it doesn't tell them how to do it. It might criticize if, say, other bodies like the Council of Europe or the UN come, up, come out with a report saying minority protection is insufficient in the country. The EU is not going to tell a country how to, how to do it. So um, the EU's transformative effect is, is illusory to an extent. I mean, it has a transformative effect because it looks like a bigger influence than it really is. But it's a transformative effect nonetheless, I think, because of the way in which it can catalyze uh, a domestic process of reforms, which may not, as you rightly point out, in the end depend on the EU to drive it, but it helps to spark it at the beginning. It gives a sense of direction. Um, I mean, I, I, I saw this, perhaps the best evidence I can give for this is, is um, when you talk to officials about policy choices. What was the set of policy choices you had in front of you in the first half of the 1990s? 
um, you know, talk to, say, somebody from a competition authority. Um, when you were trying to establish competition policy for the new free market economy of Hungary, um, did you look at the American model, which is arguably far more suitable for a transition economy than the EU one, which is very cumbersome and has, has to do with the way in which um, the EU set it up because of commission competence and all kinds of other things? Or why didn't you look at a development country model? What were the alternatives you considered? And time after time, you know, you can talk to hundreds of officials, and over and over they say, well, yeah, we did have a look at that, and we flew to Washington, and we talked to them about it, but, you know, we needed to join the EU. It was much easier to adopt the EU model and just start moving in that direction than to argue about uh, the choices we had. Um, so I think that, that's really where it comes in, uh, that... Uh, the, the EU, um, I mean, to sum up, the, the EU looks bigger than it is, and therefore uh, the presumption is in favour of going for the EU solution, even if it's suboptimal. After all, the EU is not a development agency. These solutions were often suboptimal. Um, the EU can push it faster and more easily than it would otherwise have gone. Uh, but you're absolutely right that if there isn't, if you don't have, I mean, these factors, uh, the reason why you need to have, and also this is, this is not that you have to have all of them in order to the, for the effect to work, it's the more you have these, the more the effect works. Um, uh, and I think you can, you know, if you look across Central Eastern Europe, um, you can see that uh, the more contested it was, the weaker the state, the less, less it worked. Um, but yes, so the, the EU is part of a whole process of post communist transition, which may never happen again. The EU might never have an opportunity like that ever again, um, where there was such a whole-scale systemic reform, um, where it had policies and prescriptions to offer that were relevant. In the Balkans, for many of the, the issues that are most urgent, the EU has no policy prescription at all. Then on the, the question of uh, negotiations with Turkey, um, yes, there are a lot of chapters that are blocked. They're not formally suspended, um, just to kind of go into the EU jargon. Um, it's just that they haven't been opened. <laughs> um, if I, if I, I could quote uh, Benita Ferreira-Waldner um, when she was commissioner. I remember in 2004 when Ukraine had the Orange Revolution and she said, well, Ukraine, the door to the EU is neither open nor closed, um, which is a wonderful bit of Brussels ease. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the chapters have not been suspended. Um, what's happened is um, you've got eight chapters which have been formally uh, blocked for negotiations in a decision by the European Council, because we wanted to actually be active protocol, you know, I'm sure, all the details. Um, those chapters have formally been, uh, been suspended, but the others have not. Um, you've got, and remember that um, there are quite a lot of chapters, about half a dozen, um, which, uh, for which there are no opening benchmarks, and Turkey simply needs to, to um, sorry, for which there are opening benchmarks which Turkey has not yet met. So there are preconditions for opening those chapters. So, for example, waiting for the trade union law in order to get the social uh, policy chapter open and so on. So it's a complicated um, uh, situation, but you're quite right that if there is a settlement on Cyprus, I have no doubt this process could accelerate very much, could really improve, because there are um, so many issues which are tied to the issue of Cyprus's own status. So um, I like, I think, I'm sure many people in this room would like to see that happen as soon as possible. Thank you. Um, uh, Marika Klein, the gentleman in the white shirt behind me, had caught my attention from last time. So I'm doing my best. We'll, we'll, as I say, please, please keep them short. Um, we've got till about eight. You okay? From uh, European Institute, I would like to focus on the, the economic incentives because um, for all accession countries, the economic incentives are there, even for Turkey, which is more or less satisfied uh, with the status quo. We said. 
But uh, the critical question is really how the economic or the, the gains from accession are distributed domestically. And we know from, uh, from trade policy that in order to get a free trade policy, uh, you really need to, to make sure that the, the benefits from trade are concentrated, but uh, the costs are um, distributed among a larger group in order to prevent those groups from mobilizing and lobbying against trade, or in this case, um, uh, enlargement. So do you see, and the cross-party consensus in favor of trade, or in this case, an, uh, enlargement, is simply a reflection on the way um, gains and, uh, and uh, costs are, are managed. So do you see any, uh, any differences um, if you compare the CECs to, to the Balkan countries and the way these states uh, manage the, the costs and benefits of enlargement? And do you see any role for the European Union in order to help those Balkan uh, countries to distribute the costs? Um, hello, I'm, I'm, I'm Adam Fagan from Queenberry University of London. I'd like to um, trade a, an anecdote, I suppose, a, a DG enlargement. Um, when I contacted them, uh, somebody to talk about, talk to the person responsible for administering and monitoring um, development aid to um, Bosnia and Serbia, and I explained my project, which was looking at assessing that. The first thing this person said on the end of the phone was, "Oh, good, because we don't do any of that. We don't, we don't evaluate or we don't monitor the aid." And my question, I suppose, then is, it's picking up on your um, last point, which is, you know, what is having an impact on the ground? And I think when we're trying to analyze uh, the, the EU strategy and looking at more of the supply side, I think it's really important to recognize that there hasn't been much learning from Central and Eastern Europe. I think we, you know, we're very quick to say what worked in Central and Eastern Europe and how that can be projected on the Balkans. But actually, um, the, uh, so much of the civil society assistance for um, Serbia and, and, and Bosnia and now for Kosovo is not um, evaluated, it's not ev effectively evaluated and it's not targeted anywhere near closely enough to the terms of soft conditionality. And I think also, you know, that one of the big lessons learned of course is that funding civil society and funding NGOs can engage the state and can have a, a very strong transformative impact. And very quickly, the other thing I just want to ask really I'd like to say, say a little bit more about when we're looking back at the impact of conditionality in Central Eastern Europe, when was the effect really at its greatest? Uh, because I think that's very important as well. Was it really in the last two or three years? You said that when there was a perspective of five years, within five years. But I think my understanding certainly is that in the Czech case, it, it, was, it was pretty much in, 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 in the sort of two or three years prior to, to accession. former European Institute now working as a consultant also in the region. Um, so about two years ago we were working in Ankara and had a reception with the Turkish ambassador or the British ambassador to Turkey, pretty much along the lines of your story with the Lord and I asked him, could you see that because of the transition process in Turkey that there might be any social or cultural challenges that will result maybe in potential civil unrest? And just like your lord, my ambassador said, oh, no, nothing like this will ever happen. And the day after, we had student riots over the headscarves. So my question is, could you see that, yes, you mentioned this in, in, in Abby's answer, that 
the EU as such will give you guidelines and not pinpoint do this reform, do that reform, and be very specific about it. But could you see that in the process of transforming Turkish society in political terms, in social terms, in economic terms, that there might be cause for civil unrest, that it actually might endanger civil peace, maybe, in Turkey? Wow, that's a really good question. <laughs> okay, first of all, economic incentives. Um, the simple answer to this one is that um, the countries have not got close enough to accession for this issue to arise. Um, I, I think, I mean, you're, you're right that, of course, there's a very important political economy question about um, the gains and the, the costs and, and how you, uh, in Central Eastern Europe, this was a very live issue. The fact that um, the benefits were very widely dispersed across society, whereas the costs fell on a few industries. Uh, particularly environmental regulations, very expensive for a few industries. But also across time, that you get all of the benefits in one fell swoop on the day of accession. You don't really get them in the years before. Now, the EU has started to disaggregate them a little bit with the Balkans. Uh, for example, um, uh, three of the countries will get visa liberalization on the 1st of January 2010 uh, because they've undertaken reforms in the justice and home affairs sector demanded by the EU. So that's a kind of little bit of disaggregation. But on the whole, it's still quite difficult to do it. But in the region, people aren't very aware, also in Turkey, of what the real costs of EU membership are in terms of um, essentially the, the cost to the state and also to, to um, enterprises of meeting the single market rules. Uh, those are the main economic costs um, to it. Um, but they haven't got close enough to actually be into those chapters. Even Turkey hasn't opened some of the critical chapters. Um, environment might be the next one. I think environment, if it's opened in December, could be the first big wake-up call for Turkish industry. Oh, we're very pro-joining the EU. Ah, oh, look how much this might cost. But they haven't got close enough for that really to kick in, but you're quite right, it's an important, important question for them. Um, on the question of, of aid, civil society assistance, I, I can do nothing but agree, because I now work for the Open Society Institute, which has been funding civil society in the region since about 1985. So, um, yes, it has a huge it's, it's hugely important. But um, on your question about when was the effect at its greatest, um, you can see an effect really from 98. I think the key thing was when the Commission actually started producing lists of, thing, of, uh, sort of, of, of uh, task lists of priorities in the accession partnerships. Uh, which the first one came out in 1998, um, and, and certainly in the last few years before accession. Um, and actually, this relates back to the Romania-Bulgaria question that Abby asked. Um, uh, you are, we could go into a long discursus about whether they should have joined when they did and did they meet the conditions and so on. There's no question that in the last two years before they joined, they did a huge amount. It would have been great if they started that 10 years before, but they did do a huge amount. And certainly, when, when you're very close, that's the, that's the moment when you do your utmost um, uh, to, to reform in order to get in because the political embarrassment of failing to meet the mark is, is so huge and of course that's part of the problem with the Balkans and Turkey it just seems too far away to make it worthwhile undertaking these, these massive changes and finally the question about uh, the guidelines and, and um, you giving guidelines but not pinpointing reforms and civil unrest um, well I'm not sure about the civil unrest <laughs> question because um, most of what the EU asks for uh, is not things that the public is that aware of. Um, this sort of comes back again to the, the answer I was trying to give to, to Abby's question, that the EU is presumed to have a role in lots of areas that are considered to be extremely sensitive for people, on which it actually has very little concrete to offer, and yet where it has lots of concrete things to offer. Um, competition policy, people do not riot in the streets about competition policy. 
um, people do not on the whole. Um, even on, envir- on environmental issues, they can get quite excited, it's true. Um, but, you know, in Turkey, the headscarf issue, um, that's the kind of thing that does bring, bring people out on the streets. Um, I think where you really saw that was in the Balkans because of the conditionality on the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia. That really did get people very excited. That's a big, hot political issue in which the EU had a very clear line and had clear conditionality. Um, But in Turkey, um, a lot of what's going on in Turkey now in terms of um, the role of the military, um, the ECU two years ago, the Constitutional Court case um, last year, um, these are issues on which um, the EU had something to say, there were norms to point to, but these were not core um, membership criteria for the European Union. That's the difference. Denisa Kostovicua, Government Department, LSC. Um, I was just wondering when you posed the question about uh, EU magic uh, and uh, who does this magic work for and who does it not work for? And if you look at the Western Balkans, given your low credibility score, I think it's absolutely astounding how well it actually works for the people and how little it works for the elites. And the reason is because the elites use urbanization as an electoral ticket, but actually they're aware that the rule of law and everything that comes with the reform package with, uh, with the EU integration is actually endangering their interests, the interests that were uh, accrued during the conflict, which led to a completely different transformation of the state so that you have a potential, uh, not even a, a candidate, somebody who is potentially going to join the SAP process, it's a completely different animal from the one that you had in Central Eastern Europe because of the transformation during the conflict. So I wonder when you talk about in your conclusions strengthening state capacity and focusing on institutions, whether it's actually the EU would not undermine its own project because it, it is working with those sections of societies who are not bona fide actually promoters of Europeanization. Sorry, could you repeat that last sentence? I wondered if the, the institutional focus, as it is framed currently, actually may not feed into this uh, 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 vicious circle because those actually elites do not have an interest in complete transformation because of the changed nature of the, of the state. Thank you. Gentlemen, right, right at the back. Thank you for your lecture. Uh, my name is Tentor. Uh, since I came here this fall, I've noticed this sort of uh, Pavlovian response whenever I say the name of the country where I'm from. People start to laugh. Uh, I'm from Iceland, uh, which uh, just recently applied to join the EU. EU and I was just wondering, uh, because I was, uh, of course, terribly offended that you didn't mention it at all. Um, I'm wondering if you, don't, <laughs> if you don't see any like problems uh, standing in the way of Iceland joining, or does this criteria also fit uh, the Icelandic accession process? Thank you. Um, and the lady, uh, the lady in the black there with her hand right up. Mary Oregon from Ireland. 
May I ask, there was a lot of what I would describe as broken debate in Ireland regarding the Lisbon Treaty and how its ratification could or would not help Turkey and the Balkan states to join. It's just I have a lot of different sources of information on that. If you could clarify those few points for me. Thank you. I take no responsibility for what Declan Ganley has said about, uh, <laughs> about enlargement. Um, thank you for interesting questions. Uh, so first of all, the question of incentives for politicians. Yeah, I think this is the, 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 one of the key issues. Um, I talked about domestic interest groups, which is a nice kind of vague political science way of putting it. But we're also talking about the careers of individual politicians who decide how, whether they're going to support uh, this whole joining the EU business um, and how strongly they're going to throw in their lot with that. Um, and it was something that was pretty unproblematic for most Central and East Europeans, saying, I'm in favor of the EU, the EU is our future, having a big EU flag behind them when they gave their major speeches. This wasn't a problem for them. Totally different story when it comes to Southeastern Europe. Um, in the Balkans, there are a number of politicians who, um, for example, in Serbia, who said for several years, I'm in favor of joining the EU, but their policy on Kosovo is wrong. Um, I'm in favor of joining the EU, but we shouldn't hand over X or Y to the Hague Tribunal. So there was, and, and then there were those who were saying, because the EU asks for this, we shouldn't be uh, listening to the EU. So yeah, there's certainly that. But there's also the, the issue just of, of um, does it undermine power structures um, in countries? Now, these are countries with pretty small elites, even Turkey. Turkey's a big country, but it's still got a relatively small elite, as a, you know, like, like all. Um, uh, and the, uh, if, if people feel threatened by uh, the EU, rather than seeing it as, as uh, beneficial for them, then they're going to run away uh, from, from the, that as, as a political slogan. But rather, as I was saying earlier, in terms of the calculation of the costs and benefits, we haven't quite got there yet on the economic side. Uh, people can see it when it comes to very hot political issues like um, the, the, the um, ICTY conditionality or Kosovo, but um, on most of the, econo the, the economic elites aren't really feeling the impact of the EU yet. They can see openness of markets, they can see some foreign direct investment coming in, but I think we just haven't reached the stage where they really know what the consequences of EU membership actually are and feeling it in a very real sense. So it's still about identity construction, it's not really about material incentives still. Um, Iceland, yes, I didn't mention Iceland because it's a lecture about Southeastern Europe. Um, but uh, I think for Iceland, Iceland's a really interesting counterfactual, actually. We were sort of looking for counterfactuals earlier. Iceland didn't need to join the EU for a very long time. Um, I wonder if you as an Icelandic citizen would prefer to join the Euro without joining the EU. That might be a quite convenient thing to do, um, the opposite of, of the UK's approach. Um, certainly Iceland has to meet the conditions. Um, uh, but Iceland, because of, uh, what is it, nearly three decades of membership of EFTA, um, has more or less taken on all the really expensive bits of joining the EU already. It's the opposite, really, um, of, of the situation with the Balkans and Turkey. Iceland has priced in most of the costs of membership already by already uh, being more or less uh, okay with the, with the single market acquis, um, already uh, adhering to many EU policies. Um, those expensive bits are there. The, the big issues are, of course, going to be money and fish. Um, and on those, I would expect that the EU will drive quite a hard bargain. Um, but it may well be worth paying, um, particularly after, after recent history. 
Um, but I think, actually, I should have mentioned it on the last slide about the advice to the, to the next Commissioner, that um, your first success, congratulations, Mr. Commissioner, will be the successful accession of Iceland. Um, and, uh, and you will be a hero and have a square named after you somewhere in Reykjavik, and I'm sure that that will, be, that will encourage this Commissioner, who otherwise is looking at a quite difficult portfolio. Um, and finally, on, on Ireland, does, does Lisbon help the Balkans and, and Turkey to join? Ah, hugely debatable issue. I've argued this, this uh, point several different ways um, in various speeches I've, I've had to write. Um, you could argue that um, if the Lisbon Treaty dies, it doesn't matter too much because, after all, um, uh, the EU has a, a, a legal mandate to continue with accession. Um, We've already got 27 countries uh, managing with a, a treaty that was more or less made for 12, uh, barely even for 15. Um, and so, it's, you know, we can cope. Um, things are not falling apart. On the other hand, you can argue it from the other side of, of, of the fence and say, well, actually, the EU is not a terribly effective foreign policy actor, partly because of the way in which the institutions are divided up. It would have more impact if things were brought together. Um, and also, the EU, the EU would just be more coherent and more credible, and that that would help to, to push the conditionality. So um, I kind of reserve my position on this because um, I think you can push it either way. Certainly, I think Lisbon will do two very useful things uh, which will also help enlargement. One is, is to make um, more coherent this rather ramshackle foreign policy um, infrastructure, which could make it a more attractive club to join if, it's, if it has more of an impact in the outside world. Um, but also um, the way in which it will bring together the justice, the security, justice and home affairs agenda um, in a bit more coherently, that will make it easier for countries to know what they're going to have to do before they join. It will clarify the conditionality on JLS, which is becoming one of the more onerous parts of the acquis, which, again, Central East Europeans, in a sense, they, they were lucky. They joined um, uh, in 2004, 2007. Uh, by the time the Balkan countries are coming in, JLS will be a, a much bigger acquis, I think. And so having a more streamlined institutional structure will facilitate both them understanding what it is that they need to do, but also when they actually join, being able to do it. I mean, Abby's point about can they implement what they've promised, um, the EU is getting quite hot on making sure that promises can be kept. You know, we must end at eight. I'm going to say introduce two, two, more, two more questions. Keep them incisive, please. One sentence questions. I'll take the gentleman over there in the low jumper. Uh, and uh, there, uh, can we see your blue? Since we'd like to have another Turkish, uh, another Turkish perspective on some very controversial things that have been said about Turkey. So please, Abby. Will Bartlett, European Institute. Um, I found your, your uh, framework very useful, but I wondered if you could apply it slightly differentially to the different Balkan countries. Um, your talk sounded very much as though you're thinking mainly about Serbia and Bosnia, and, uh, but it may be, I think, quite different circumstances in some other countries. For example, in Croatia, there's, uh, I would argue, there's a you know, strong a cross-party consensus that has been for some time and Croatia is moving quite fast towards uh, accession and there's been significant inflows of foreign investment there. It's quite relatively high compared to even some of the uh, East European countries uh, previously accessed. And then um, for Macedonia, um, the, uh, I've argued that the um, EU has had a strong uh, cohesive effect on inter-ethnic relations and you can see that in the recent um, uh, issues about the uh, publication of uh, the Macedonian Encyclopedia, which almost caused uh, 
some serious conflicts there, but the elites were sufficiently able to come together, probably because they have a joint interest in EU accession. And the problem for Macedonia, I think, is more from the EU side with the potential of the Greek vetoes on further progress there. I wonder what you thought about those issues. Hi, I'm also a former European Institute student, and as Moi clarified, from Turkey as well. And you sort of talked about identity politics still being very much alive in Turkey, which I completely agree with. But I think in the case of Turkey and Europe, there's also identity politics between the two, which are very contentious as well. And so I wanted to ask you a recent proposal by the Turkish President Abdullah Gül on just let us go through with the accession process and then let us put it to a referendum as well, and then maybe we'll decide not to join. And I wanted to hear what you make of it, A, in terms of this idea that maybe Turkey is becoming more confident and self-sufficient and finding sort of an internal push for this, but also in terms of these very complicated identity dynamics that exist between Turkey and Europe. Thanks. Okay, yes, I mean, Croatia, you, you, well, it, like, like with many issues in Enlargement, you could look at it several different ways. Uh, you could argue that Croatia is the last central European to join. There are certainly a lot of Croatians who like to argue that. You know, had it not been for these pesky wars, we could have come in 2004 with these other countries. Um, and you hear those arguments made by some of the member states as well. Um, but you could also say that Croatia still has a long way to go on a number of things. Um, although Croatia is now quite close to the end of negotiations and the bilateral issue is, is abating, but on the rule of law, on judicial reform, the Commission is still um, pointing the finger, as, as you'll see from the progress report, um, and saying there's still a lot to be done before, before joining. Um, so uh, I think that the framework actually does apply quite well because Croatia has a strong, well-organized state, a cross-party consensus, significant flows of FDI. That's why it's pretty close to joining and the other countries are not. So it's meeting the conditions much more rapidly. Um, and I think the EU has, uh, has been able to um, help with, for example, economic reforms faster than otherwise would have happened. But um, to come back to um, Abby's uh, quote about the Potemkin village, um, there, there's still, I think, a question about how far the domestic institutions have been transformed. Um, and the EU does not ask for countries to become like Sweden. I mean, maybe this is the answer to the Romania-Bulgaria question. Um, the, the, the bar for joining the EU is not that you are um, a centuries-old democracy with a fully market economy and extremely liberal and open and tolerant society. Not all of these things are like Sweden, but, you know, kind of Sweden is the architect. Um, no, the, the, the criteria are that you've got to have um, institutions which guarantee democratic stability, you know, or democratic institutions, uh, stable institutions that guarantee democracy, rather. Um, you've got to have an open market economy that can compete in the single market, and you've got to be able to take on the obligations of membership. That doesn't mean you have to have resolved all of your um, uh, issues to do with um, post-conflict post resolution, reconciliation, justice. Uh, you don't have, a, have to have perfectly functioning institutions. Um, you don't even have to have dealt fantastically well with organized crime or corruption. Because uh, think about certain EU member states founding members of the EU, which survived with all of those things for a very long time, um, while being full members of, of the, the community and then the union. Um, so I think 
this is, again, where the, the rhetoric um, tends to be a bit too captivating. Um, people talk about the EU as if it's, it's everything that a country should aspire to. And actually, it's very patchy in what it asks for and in what it can influence. Um, and that's also the case with Croatia. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not going to comment on the, the name issue because I'm really, really hoping that it's going to be resolved very soon given changes of government um, and, uh, well, elections in, in both countries. Um, on the question of identity politics, um, well, actually, I think you have kind of two different elements to your question. On the, the good proposal to have a referendum, that's not particularly controversial. Lots of countries have done that in the past. I mean, that's quite normal that you would put that to the people. And given the precipitous fall in public support for joining the EU in Turkey, it's not a bad thing to, to raise that, that as, a, as, a, as, a, as a political issue in the country. Turkey is growing more confident. It is quite self-sufficient. But, you know, Turkey was pretty self-sufficient before beginning the process. So what you, I think the, the big question in Turkish politics is, what does Turkey need the EU for? What is it it needs for? Is it about feeling a, a sense of identity of we are European, we are not like other countries? Is it a kind of a negative identity construction? Is it as a catalyst to reforms, or is Turkey actually motoring along quite happily? Is it um, about uh, trying to be different from the other countries in the region? Is it about having benefits of membership, like having a seat at the table? I mean, that could end up being the most important thing. But in the Turkish debate, that's very unclear. People have very different motives for wanting to join the EU. There is a general sense that we have the right to join the EU, and we've been unfairly excluded from the EU for too long. That's a very strong theme. You'll hear that from almost all uh, participants in Turkish politics. But when you ask them, so what exactly do you expect EU membership to bring Turkey that doesn't have already? I think the key answer um, is, is power. It's about having a seat at the table. And, and being able, to, and I mean, this could, you could also argue for, for Iceland at the other end of the spectrum in terms of population size. It's having the seat at the table. You can be part of the market, you can be participating in the policies, you can even be getting quite a lot of EU aid. But if you, you're not there at the Council of Ministers when big things get decided that affect the whole region, the whole of broader Europe, and not just the EU, you actually want to be in there. So I think, I think that's going to be uh, the key question. Um, and in the end, Turks will have to decide whether they need the EU more or the EU needs them more. Well, a parting shot, and one I'm sure you're asked at just about every time you speak in these matters, Heather. Uh, is Turkey going to join, and if so, when? What's your guess? <laughs> um, my guess is um, that if Turkey doesn't join, it will be because Turkey has said no, not because the EU has said no. I don't think the EU is ever going to actually stop the accession process dead. Not because, it was the Balkans, I mentioned Tina, there is no alternative. There are alternatives for Turkey. But in the end, I think it would be very hard for the EU to close the, for the, EU to close the door on Turkey because that would have ramifications not just among uh, Turkey's population of 70 million, but also in the whole Muslim world. Um, that would be very incomprehensible to a large number of countries which the EU needs to influence. So I think, um, I think um, if somebody says no, it's going to be Turkey rather than the EU. But what I'm kind of more worried about with regard to Turkey is not that somebody will come along and decapitate the process and just say, that's it, no more negotiations. It's more death by a thousand cuts. It's that you get this constant sapping of the credibility of the accession process, which means it loses all of its transformative effect. And it just becomes a, a really bitter, resentful debate in Turkey about the EU and why won't they let us in. And in the EU, we just um, keep seeing Turkey as a mirror of our own society's problems um, with difference, with Muslims, with um, the questions of secularism and faith, um, uh, rather than debating what Turkey could bring to the union. 
So if you were a betting lady, you haven't answered the question. <laughs> um, I think probably Turkey will join the union, yes. Um, uh, but I would say there could be another decade in negotiations. Well, I think we can all agree we've had an absolutely cracking hour and a half with Heather. Heather, um, you've surpassed all our expectations, uh, or rather, actually, you've confirmed them. Um, and uh, thank you very, very much and for answering questions so brilliantly. Thank you.